Welcome into the conversation. It is your host, Adrian Lawrence. Today, I'm bringing you an inventor who often, also happens to be the founder and CEO of Alice Technologies, Renee Marcos. Thank you for joining us, Renee. Thanks for having me here, Adrian. Yes, so right now the current housing crisis in terms of the lack of housing, also affordability. It is a major crisis right now in our society, especially as we look right down the barrel of what appears to be a recession. And it only seems like things are getting worse, but I know that Alice Technologies has an answer for us. It does, we've invented the world's first generative construction simulator. And so it's a, a, a technology that can take a construction project and then simulate it in millions of different ways. It can build a building or a residential home or whatever it is that you're constructing six million different ways. One crane, two cranes, overtime to overtime, find the most efficient way to go about it. Wow, um, that definitely sounds like something that would help us address this issue. Uh, and in terms of layman uh, thoughts, in terms of on the ground, I guess, how could people use this to really address the crisis? Well, since 2019, housing prices have gone up by about 58%. Um, lumber uh, alone has gone up by about 260%. Um, our technology helps you reduce the cost of labor and equipment, which is about 40% of the total by somewhere around 13% on average. It also helps you speed up the, the, the speed of construction by about 17%. And so that's what the technology can do. Wow, that, that's, that's incredible. That seems huge, um, game changing. And so I guess, uh, what are next steps in terms of getting this on the market and getting it to hopefully heal some of this problem out there? Well, we're already on the market. We're working with some of the world's largest construction companies. Uh, we tend to do a lot of infrastructure projects around the world. My background is I've sort of been through two wars and seen the destruction that uh, the lack of infrastructure can bring to a society. And so we've been focused on that, but we're releasing the uh, residential module of Alice uh, in the next you know few months. And that's, I think, going to address the uh, lower end or the smaller sort of single family home uh, market. Uh, need. All right, so you're looking to lower that need uh, in terms of addressing the issue when it comes to single family homes. And also, again, being already on the market. But in terms of really getting there in terms of the residential needs, what necessarily needs to happen? Well, for us, what we're doing is we're, it's a tech, technical question. We're releasing something that, that actually speeds up uh, the setup of uh, a project because most residential homes are actually very similar. Uh, what we're developing is a is a um, an add-on that will allow you to actually set these projects up in in less than an hour versus you know several days or or several weeks that we need today. And so upon releasing this, you'll be able to sort of take a single-family home, put it into the system. It'll ask you 15, 20 questions and pop out you know a simulated, optimized uh, construction project for you. Wow, and so as I also understand it, so by reducing global construction costs by some 25%, millions more people will have access to healthcare infrastructure and also elevating their standard of living. How is that specific toward healthcare? How's that specific towards healthcare? Um, what Alice does, and we're working on some of the biggest infrastructure projects in the world. Uh, we're working on the um, HS2, for example. We're working on uh, the high-speed rail in the UK. It's $170 billion job. We're working on uh, several infrastructure sort of projects in the US. Um, what Alice does is it can take large complex jobs and then tell you the most efficient way to build them. Whether you want to apply that to infrastructure, uh, we've done uh, data centers, we've done um, 
solar facilities, we've done healthcare, hospitals, it doesn't matter. It's almost agnostic and its ability to be applied to any type of construction project that you want. Um, healthcare is no exception. Uh, we've done, I think, $350 million hospital, followed by a $210 million hospital in the US. Wow. And in terms of being an inventor, what led you down this path to want to create this technology? I think for me, I, I, I always like to push the boundaries. Um, I grew up uh, in the Lebanese war, and so I saw really firsthand how uh, destruction affects you know society. And so I learned very quickly how to build. And then when I grew up, I went to Afghanistan. I was a private civilian contractor in Kabul, uh, really helping the reconstruction efforts of the country. Um, our company slogan was take it easy, we'll build it again. And so um, we did that for 13 months. Um, I really saw, you know, I was very young at the time, but I got given a lot of responsibility and I saw how inefficient the process was. And so I ended up doing a PhD in the, in the topic and really trying to figure out better ways to optimize it. And being in Silicon Valley, um, if you're a, a hammer, everything's a nail. So we applied AI to it and uh, it turns out that it, it works and it works really, really well. Um, there's a lot of inefficiency in construction and, and, you know, applying AI to it really unlocks um, a lot of um, a lot of um, uh, efficient cycles that you can sort of start doing. That's really interesting in terms of um, kind of infusing AI in the construction process. What does that look like? It's a great question. So, what I I've put about 13 years of my life into it, and so I started doing conceptual research. And so, conceptual research is just figuring out the pieces of the puzzle. And so what I mean by that is, is, you know, what is a crew? What is labor? What is equipment? How do you model cranes? How do you model overtime, calendars, resources, materials? So, the, you know, just really spending two years of my life thinking about what are the pieces of the puzzle? And then from there, we went to theoretical research. So how do those pieces interact? What are the mathematical equations that govern these interactions? And how could you model it in a computer? And once I had that piece, started doing prototyping. And so just simple, small scripts of algorithms that could sort of crunch little problems. And then at one point, there was a sort of realization like, wait, this thing, this thing is alive. It knows how to build it. We, it, it cracked it, you know. And then from there, it went to commercial product and then commercialization. And so that's taken 13 years at this point. Wow. And did you find it difficult when it came to getting it on the market to convince people that this is a game changer? Uh, I remember Edison has this quote, which is innovation is 99% perspiration, and 1% inspiration. And I thought to myself at the time, I thought, ah, you know, I mean, the idea is worth about 20% at least. And as I sort of went through the years, I, I at one point realized, okay, he was right. And today I, I actually think it's, it's the idea is worth less than 1%. So yeah, there's a lot of challenges. I actually have come to the conclusion that, that the innovation part is really just about the ability to bang your head against the wall longer than than the other person. You know, I, I think it's a lot less to do with skill or intelligence or ability, but just just kind of gritting through it. So yeah, it, it has been challenging for sure. Yeah, but I'm sure it's very rewarding. And I'm sure that many people in our society very much appreciate it because having this innovative thought and process will make a lot of people's lives a lot easier, right? I hope so. Uh, the, the highs are definitely very, very high. You know, you got that one day every couple of months where you crack that next piece of the puzzle and it's working and it's it's up and it's flying and it's doing all this cool stuff. And it's not comparable to almost anything else. It's it's a great sense of joy, but quickly followed by, you know, 
59 days of, oh, this thing's on fire, it's not working, you know, and, and that's generally the kind of way, the way it works. But slowly, slowly, you know, it, it's it's been slow and steady progress. You know, it feels like the Silicon Valley roller coaster where everybody tells you, you know, it, up and down and up and down and up and down. But if you look over the course of the last decade, it's just been a average steady, steady sort of uh, curve or steady slope, uh, you know, of improvement. And when, when I look at it today, it, it's definitely, you know, I wouldn't have imagined it would be this this big and this sort of powerful and this cool when I started it. That is very cool. And uh, even though you're not necessarily at the top of the mountain in terms of this technology, is there anything on the forefront that maybe is next for you? Yeah, the release of the the residential uh, unit. You know, that's I think one of the next things that we're doing. Uh, and we're interestingly enough uh, looking at also targeting large complex industrial jobs, uh, solar. Um, Oil and gas, sort of upper end of the spectrum, so north of like one, 1.5 billion is the other sort of you know flip side of it. And it's interesting that they both require like a, a setup before you send it into the system for it to be crunched. Just a different kind of setup. All right, very nice. And in terms of um, how the construction kind of contractors are responding, are they pretty receptive? Because uh, generally, as someone who's worked with contractors occasionally over the course of her life, I know that they like their processes. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think construction has, has received a, a, an unfair reputation for not being innovative. And I think that it's not that construction is not innovative. We are the last or second last in the industry after agriculture to digitize uh, because the problems that we're digitizing tend to be bigger and more complex than other fields. We have to wait for design architecture to digitize. That only happened in 2015. And it's because the machines needed to catch up. And so you'll definitely find very innovative people. We work with construction companies that have in-house PhDs, research centers, uh, computer vision sort of scientists are, are, are developing their own software for drones and, and all kinds of, you know, I, I say cutting edge research. So it, it definitely exists in the construction industry. You just have to look. Yes, without a doubt. And as far as it concerns um, cutting edge research and innovation, I know you guys are looking toward the residential arm, but is there anything that we can anticipate possibly coming out in the future, maybe in the next five to 10 years? I think that what's happened in construction today is what happened to manufacturing back in the 70s and 80s. Um, construction as an industry is getting digitized. And I think the year that if you were to sort of you know, put one year where that started to happen. I think 2017 is a safe bet. 2017, I think there was a congruence of factors. The technology was there, the cloud computing, the processing speed, venture capitalists started pouring money. I think the money doubled and you started to see a big shift. And what's happening is that there's a new ecosystem coming at us in construction. The next five to 10 years is going to see a very, very different landscape. And that ecosystem that's getting developed is, in my opinion, going to get managed or, or to a large part um, uh, valued by 30 to 50 companies. Um, and the exciting thing is for today, everybody in construction is, can be part of that wave. I realized that just like the researchers, the startups, the companies, the reporters, everybody that's involved in construction can, can ride this. The most exciting thing that's happened to our field, I think really in the last two millennia. All right, well, we definitely look forward to it. And anybody who's interested in Alice Technologies, where should they go for more information? AliceTechnologies.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Renee Marcos. Thank you, Adrian.
And it's more conversation with Adrian Lawrence. And this time I'm bringing you the executive director of the Advancement Project of National Office. That's Judith Brown Deannis. Thank you so much for joining us, Judith. Thank you for having me. Yes, so I know that 50 black led orgs sent a letter to Congressional Black Caucus. What was it about? Uh, so it went up to 65 black led organizations. We were happy we got a few more. Um, so we were sending a letter because um, the Congressional Black Caucus uh, was in discussions with other people in the House of Representatives about two particular bills that would support uh, funding for more police. Um, in particular, the Invest to Protect Act was the was the one, the bill that that stayed in play after the Progressive Caucus killed the other one. And we just wanted to let them know that um, we were opposed to that, right? That in, in fact, that um, black people, many black people, millions took to the streets in 2020 um, after the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And we didn't forget. We didn't forget that we wanted something different. We didn't forget that police are not accountable. And that we wanted to make sure that the Congressional Black Caucus knew that black people still care about policing and that we don't want to continue to support a system that has been killing us. Absolutely, and with good reason. And so to see the potential that law enforcement would get even further funding, especially when they um, they, they they get a considerable amount, including that that makes them a militarized body in our society, and the individuals that they often target tend to look like you and I. And so as it concerns this mobilization effort to get these voices, these signatories involved in this letter, what has gone into that? Well, um, you know, there's a um, so the letter was put together by um, my organization, Advancement Project, along with the Movement for Black Lives, um, which is a network of Black-led organizations that came together um, really back after um, Mike Brown was murdered, uh, and then the um, Black Voters Matter was another one of the organizations, and um, Black Futures Lab, uh, Action Lab, and we really wanted to come together because we know we were with all of these organizations that are doing incredible work across the country to reimagine public safety. And so we moved pretty quickly to get folks on board. And again, this was really to put a line in the sand because we know that you know, it's like it's a slippery slope, right? It's like one bill and then another bill and then another bill because we we also know that the American Recovery Plan, um, you know, when people thought money was going to um, states and to local governments for recovery during um, and after the pandemic um, to actually help us, that there were billions of dollars, $10 billion going to police and to public safety. But many cities use that money to give bonuses to police officers, to hire more police officers, to upgrade their equipment, to get more technology. And so we continue down this path. And you know, and we're being told that in the media that there's just this violence issue and that everyone should care. And we have politicians running in the midterms who are running on who can be the toughest on crime. 
Meanwhile, black folks are suffering under the under the the knee and the and under the literal knee of um, of the police. And so, um, you know, there are a number of civil rights groups that meet with the Congressional Black Caucus all the time. But it's these smaller groups that are organizing in our communities that are on the front lines that don't get heard from often. And so, we wanted to make sure their voices were in the mix. Absolutely, and having those voices be heard and hopefully respected and honored is something that's incredibly important, especially for the progress of our society. And as it concerns this letter and the voices who contributed to it, what do you think in the letter, at least in your position as an attorney and a civil rights movement individual who focuses on advocating for equality, what do you think is the most persuasive element in that letter? Well, I. I think the I would hope <laughs> that the most persuasive part is that um, first of all we pointed out the number of police killings that have happened very recently. I mean, Akron, Ohio is one. Um, you know, so we wanted to make sure they know that black people are still being killed by the police, even though the media is not covering it as much. Um, and two, that we have a different vision for public safety. And that different vision is that we really want to be supporting, reimagining public safety by supporting the things that we know will let our communities thrive. So, you know, why are we criminalizing people who are unhoused instead of making sure they have housing, right? Um, why are we so quick to criminalize people who have drug addiction instead of giving them help? Um, maybe we, we know we need more mental health interventions for people instead of sending out the police, sending out mental health providers. Uh, we need schools that work for our young people and that have wraparound services for them. And so that's what we really want. And this comes back to like the whole conversation about defund the police, right? And the president saying, fund the police. And he's very clear, like those are the words that he uses, which is just kind of a pushback to the millions of people who talk, who took to the streets in 2020. And what we're saying is it's time to do something drastically different because the police do not keep us safe. And we want something different than what we saw in the 1990s after the crime bill of 1994 added 100,000 more police to our streets. We know what that what happened as a result, that mass incarceration happened as a result. And yet we have a president who is ready to push forward on a safer, safer America plan that would put 100,000 more police on the streets in the United States. And so um, we're hoping that we can continue to, to let people see a different um, vision of what safety means. And that it really means investing in us and our communities instead of the, the police. And so the letter notes that if Congress wants to improve public safety, that it should pursue legislative backed agendas like those outlined in the People's Response Act. What kind of examples do you have? Well, the People's Response Act is sponsored by Congresswoman Cori Bush, who is from St. Louis, where Mike Brown was murdered. And many of our organizations actually worked on putting that bill together. And again, that would invest in things like housing, violence interrupters, mental health interventions, all of the things that we need to thrive instead of giving money to the police. You know, we could, and and the other problem is that we know. That police are unaccountable, you know, and Congress can't pass 
the the actual um, George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, but they can keep giving us police. And so we're saying enough already. Absolutely. And the thing is, is it's at least disappointing on my end to think that, or actually to see that uh, President Biden doesn't see the ineptitude of police and the thought that we are pouring resources in them continuously, yet they are not protecting and serving. And thus it would seem wise to pour resources and other things that are proven to be more effective when it turn, when it as it comes to the needs of individuals in our society. And so as it concerns the focus here with the letter and also the motivation behind it, what other kind of backing do you think may be necessary in order for the letter's objectives to actually be fulfilled? So this, um, the bill um, still has to go through the Senate and we don't think it, we're hoping that it will not pass the Senate. But we also know that this was a trial balloon, that this was an opportunity for um, for Democrats to see how far they could go on policing. And so um, while we hope it doesn't make it out of the Senate, what we really need to do is be prepared for um, this Safer America Act. And that we are really trying to get people ready for that fight. Um, and to make sure that Democrats as well as Republicans know that we need something different. And so um, so we're gonna keep pushing and we're gonna keep fighting for what our communities really deserve and need to thrive. Yes, absolutely. And hopefully we will also have the backing of members of legislature who claim to want to ensure that they are listening to their constituents and looking out for their needs. And in terms of other opportunities to get involved that your organization is advancing and truly invested in when it comes to the Advancement Project National Office, what is on your agenda? Sure, so we, um, first of all, we're a voting rights organization also. So we will be out protecting the vote during this uh, this midterm season. Um, we have litigation that's ongoing, and so that's one of our fights. Uh, and then we have a we have a cool little project called um, How Cops Get Off, and I hope people can go to um, policefreecommunities.org and you can learn about how um, police are unaccountable and what you can do about it. Um, and then we're also doing education work. Um, we're fighting back to make sure that police are taken out of schools because teenagers don't want police around. They don't feel safe with them. They would rather have counselors and restorative justice programs. And so that's the work of advancement projects, supporting people on the ground who are on the front lines in trying to ensure that we have racial justice and an inclusive democracy. Absolutely, inclusion is incredibly necessary, particularly in today's day and age. And I was also wondering with the midterms coming up, is there anything that you are particularly eyeing? Yes, well, um, well, first of all, we're worried about the Supreme Court because there are a few decisions that we think will come down um, that will deal another blow to the Voting Rights Act. Uh, and then in the states, we're worried in places like Georgia, where it's a battleground state, in Florida, where there are key elections around the governor's race and the senator's race. We are gonna be monitoring to make sure that people actually have access to the polls and worried about intimidation. And so you know, we are part of the Election Protection Coalition and we hope people will call 1-866-R-VOTE if they have a problem voting. But that we wanna make sure people participate because there's so much on the ballot this year about who is going to be in power, whether they're on our side on abortion bans, um, on voting rights, on inflation and other issues that um, progressive folks care about. 
Absolutely, and so if people wanna get involved or follow you more in this effort, where should they go? Uh, you can go to our website, uh, which is www.advancementproject.org. And you can follow us on Twitter and on Instagram also. Fantastic, thank you so much for joining us. That's Judith Brown Dianis, Executive Director, Advancement Project National Office. Thanks, Adrian.